Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to the D-Hypno program. This will be episode six. And if you followed my earlier shows, I've covered the Sirhan Sirhan timeline and I also did an audio kind of review and commentary on mission mind control. And in mission mind control, there was this guy, Milton Klein, who's passed away, but he said he could, you know, create a hypno program person uh, within six months. And one of the people who was he was friends with was a gentleman by the name of George Estabrooks, E-S-T-A-B-R-O-O-K-S. And George Estabrooks in his book, Hypnotism, mentions Milton Klein as an influence. And it's right in the introduction. So I went back and found a copy of Hypnotism. But it's, uh, I think, very interesting. And there's very interesting sections. So I'm going to just read kind of the intro and how to induce hypnotism, and then talk about post-hypnotic suggestion, and also hypnotism in crime and in warfare and in human affairs. A really interesting section in this book about Hitler and his use of hypnotism on his audience. So I guess it kind of takes one to know one, much like people who practice ceremonial magic can recognize other magicians or people in the occult. I think hypnotists can recognize other hypnotists. So this book was first published in 1943. We know the beginning in the USA of MKUltra was 53. So this kind of lays the groundwork in that environment. And Esther Books uh, also wrote some other books. He wrote The Future of the Human Mind, also with a blurb by Klein. As a matter of fact, Klein uh, says about The Future of the Human Mind. This excellent book should be required reading for all who wish to gain an introductory and insightful understanding of the human mind. So that's Milton Klein. But uh, he also wrote Spiritism and Man, the Mechanical Misfit. So kind of this kind of <clears throat> materialist view of the human being. And as he's known to have done experiments on children, Esther Brooks did. Uh, he was also trying to use hypnosis to change the behavior of juvenile delinquents. And he actually was in correspondence with Edgar Hoover pre-World War II in 36. And there's a long FBI file on Esther Brooks, which probably is a whole nother show I'd have to go through, but it's very ornate. I think it's hundreds of pages. And of course, Esther Brooks is a 32nd degree Knight Templar Mason. So um, also a Harvard University graduate, Rhodes Scholar, and chairman of the Department of Psychology in Colgate. I believe that's in Hamilton, New York. So there's a lot of curious things that happened in upstate New York. And Esther Brooks was part of it. He died, lived from 1895 to 1973. So he must uh, he lived through the 60s. He must have seen quite a bit. So this, again, is one of Esther Brooks' book, books. And I'll probably go through some of his other stuff. But like I said, I'm going to kind of bounce around. I'm not going to read directly from it, but the first two chapters I'll try to get through in their entirety. So here we go. Chapter one, meet hypnotism. Let us first look at a few facts about hypnotism. You may find some of these both amazing and disturbing. For example, will a person in hypnotism do things he would not do in the waking state? Very recently in Denmark, there was a murder which bears out this question. An amateur hypnotist named Nielsen had induced a hypnotic subject named Hardrup to commit a murder. The case was easy to solve, for Nielsen was a blundering amateur. 
The chief state witness was a Dr. P.J. Ryder, an international authority on hypnotism. At the trial, he made the statement that in hypnotism, any man is capable of any act. Remember, this was first published in 43. The outcome of that trial may seem just a little strange from the, some viewpoints. Nielsen, the hypnotist, got a life sentence, the maximum penalty in Denmark, whereas Hardrup, the actual murderer, received a two-year sentence on the basis of temporary insanity. Several years back, I gave a little tea party at Oxford, England, in honor of an American guest who I knew was interested in certain aspects of hypnotism. To that party, I invited two English friends. I had just got nicely underway. It just got nicely underway when one of my English friends suddenly arose went to the door and ushered in the Prime Minister of England. Needless to say, the Englishman regarded the visit as a great honor. The party continued for about an hour. My English friends served whiskey and soda to His Excellency and had a wonderful time as they questioned him on all sorts of political issues. The Prime Minister seemed quite capable of taking care of himself and sent my friends into gales of laughter with some of his witty remarks. This was exactly as it should have been with one little joker, there was no prime minister. My English friends, both excellent hypnotic subjects, were acting under post-hypnotic hallucinations. To them, His Excellency was very real. To the rest of us, the experience was just a little uncanny as they sat there carrying on in an animated and brilliant conversation with an empty chair. Can a person be hypnotized against his will? That, to a hypnotist, is a silly question. No psychologist who regarded himself as an authority in this field would waste his time trying to do so. He would use the disguise technique, a device well known to the research hypnotist, a device as successful as any other means of producing hypnotism. The question that should be asked is, quote, can a man be hypnotized without his consent, unquote? The answer is an emphatic yes. Then what? That depends on the hypnotist and his plans. Should he be interested in the military application of hypnotism, as is the writer, he might at first proceed somewhat along the following lines. And please believe me, we shall talk in terms of scientific facts, not daydreams. First, the hypnotist would try for that amazingly quick control, so essential to his line of research. After a little practice, the hypnotist can train a subject to go into the trance in literally one second and to come out of it in the same time. The hypnotist would also remove from the subject all knowledge of having been hypnotized. If questioned on the matter, the subject would maintain that he had no interest whatsoever in hypnotism and had never been hypnotized in his life. This may seem hard to believe, but is a mere chore to the practice psychologist. Then he would probably make it impossible for anyone else to hypnotize the subject unless he, the operator, gave his consent. Again, a little hard for the layman to believe, but a mere chore to the practitioner. The procedure might develop somewhat along the following lines. During the Second World War, the writer introduced one of his best subjects to a visitor who was striving to master the fine points of hypnotism. We will call the visitor Mr. Jones and the subject simply Bob. Do you mind if I hypnotize you, Bob? asked Jones. Go ahead and try. You will be wasting your time. No one can hypnotize me, Bob replied. The professor here says you're a good subject. The professor doesn't know what he's talking about, came the sarcastic reply. So Jones worked on Bob for half an hour and got absolutely nowhere. I agree with you, Bob, he said. The professor doesn't know what he's talking about. Bob said the writer, are you sure you have never been hypnotized in your life? I am, he replied. And you are quite certain that you couldn't hypnotize you, that I couldn't hypnotize you. That's correct, he snapped back. In one second flat, he was in a deep trance. 
Have you ever heard of or seen waking hypnotism? Probably not. Let us give a brief word of explanation before we describe the next case. Otherwise, you would be hopelessly lost. By the use of what we call post-hypnotic cues, the, stilled, the skilled hypnotist dealing with a trained subject can shift from a trance to the waking state, or from a waking state to the trance, with bewildering speed. Moreover, if the subject has been trained with this end in view, it is practically impossible to tell from his looks whether he is hypnotized or whether he is awake. Again, a mere chore in the research laboratory. Let us illustrate what we mean by waking hypnotism. The setting was another tea party in a room of a college at Oxford. There were three people present, one of them a medical doctor who was interested in the medical aspects of hypnotism. As the tea drew toward its close, the writer winked at his doctor friend. Now see if you can follow this one. Tom, he queried, addressing the third man present. Where have you been for the last two hours? I've been up on Boar's Hill playing golf, came the reply. Tom had been hypnotized all the while, and the doctor had not detected it. He'd also been given the post-hypnotic suggestion that when awake in question, he would insist that he had been on Boar's Hill. We admit this gets a little complicated, but try to follow it. The writer had used one of those subtle post-hypnotic cues to pull Tom out of the trance. My doctor friend looked at him hard and long. Listen, Tom, he said, you know perfectly well you have been sitting right here having tea with us for the last two hours. Why, certainly, that's what I told you. Tom was in the trance again. But you just told me you had been playing golf on Boar's Hill. That's right, I was, Tom replied. He was awake. This little farce went on for the next ten minutes, and try as the doctor would, he could not pick up on the cues by which the writer was hypnotizing and dehypnotizing Tom. Let us take another example of waking hypnotism and of this speed of control, one which is easier to believe. The writer has more than once used a good hypnotic subject as a partner at bridge. He will play one hand in the trance, one hand out of the trance, and no one can tell when he is, when he is hypnotized, when he is awake, or can pick up on post-hypnotic cues by which the writer makes the transitions. But what can we do with hypnotism as it has been described here? Hypnotism may be a fascinating subject to study, but this is a very practical world. How do we use it, or how do, could we use it if we were free to do so? Let us illustrate. Let us begin with the destructive phases of modern life, such as warfare. Thence through certain lines of human activity where hypnotism could definitely be of great use, but cannot now be fully be used fully because of popular prejudice against the use of hypnotism. Medicine is one of the fields in which its worth is now being appreciated. Let's take an illustration from warfare using a technique which has been called the hypnotic messenger. For obvious reasons, the problem of transmitting messages in wartime of communication with an army's own forces is a first-class headache to the military. They can choose codes, but codes can be lost, stolen, or, as we say, broken. They can use the dispatch carrier, but woe betide the messages if the enemy locates the messenger. They can send by word of mouth, but the third degree in any one of its many forms can get that message. War is a grim business, and humans are human. So we invent a technique which is practically foolproof. We take a good hypnotic subject in, say, Washington, and in hypnotism, we give him the message which we wish transferred. This message can be long and complicated, for his memory is excellent. Let us assume the war is still on that we transfer him to Tokyo on a regular routine assignment, say with the Army Service Corps. Now note a very curious picture. 
Awake, he knows just one thing so far as his transfer to Tokyo is concerned. He's going on regular business, which has nothing whatever to do with the intelligence department. But in his unconscious mind, there is locked this very important message. Furthermore, we have arranged that there is only one person in all the world outside ourselves who can hypnotize this man and get this message, a Major McDonald in Tokyo. When he arrives in Tokyo, acting on post-hypnotic suggestion, he will look up Major McDonald, who will hypnotize him and recover the message. With this technique, there is no danger that the subject in an off-guard moment will let drop a statement to his wife or in public that might arouse suspicions. He is an Army Service Corps man going to Tokyo, that is all. There's no danger of himself getting in hot water when drunk. Should the enemy suspect the real purpose of his visit to Tokyo, they would waste their time with third-degree methods. Consciously, he knows nothing that is of any value to them. The message is locked in the unconscious, and no amount of drugs, no attempts at hypnotism can recover it until he sits before Major McDonald in Tokyo. The uses of hypnotism and warfare are extremely varied. We deal with this subject in a later, ch later chapter. Let us now illustrate from several areas where hypnotism could be of great use to humans, but wherein our hands are tied as of the present moment because of popular prejudice. Just before the Second World War at Colgate University, there was a certain boy in the sophomore class who was the despair of his parents and his instructors. No one denied his brilliance, and no one denied that he was as lazy as all get out. His parents were friends of the writer and asked him to try hypnotism. After all, there was nothing to lose and much to gain. The boy turned out to be an excellent subject. Now note what happened. He had the brains. That was admitted. He needed direction, a goal, and he needed motivation. He needed to get the motor in high. We began with a little hypnoanalysis using the technique of C.G. Young, who claims that our real wishes, our real aims in life, are locked in the unconscious, and that unfortunately most of us do not realize that when those true wishes are what those true wishes are, until it's too late, if indeed we ever realize the situation. In hypnotism, this boy asserted that his real ambition in life lay along the lines of commercial art. This was something quite new, both to the boy's parents and to the boy himself. <clears throat> in the waking state, <clears throat> we narrowed the field. Commercial art, but what kind of commercial art? Be specific. This took time. It slowly became evident that his great interest was in the outdoors, especially in the field of botany. So his unconscious mind settled for the idea of a botanical illustrator. We were now faced with the problem of getting this idea accepted by the conscious mind, which, as we have said before, was as lazy as they come and quite satisfied with the gentleman's grades in anything, provided it, it didn't have to work for it. His conscious mind was frankly unimpressed with this idea of becoming a botanical illustrator. We decided to use direct methods and more or less strong-armed him by means of the post-hypnotic suggestion into the botany and the fine arts department. Then, strange to say, he began to catch fire. He was graduated from Colgate, and during the last two years of his grade, grades were approaching Phi Beta Kappa. We had told him, we had to hold him back, for he was working too hard for his own health. He turned out to be the best botanical illustrator which this university has ever produced. This technique is not generally in use at the present, but it may contain great promise for the future. The public has to be educated along these lines, and that education will take time. Let us now illustrate from another field in which not much is now being done. 
The writer is, among other things, director of placement for his college, hence his interest in the following type of case. This concerns a veteran of the Second World War, Smith, who returned to Colgate and finished his college work after being discharged. By graduation, he was already married, had a family, and was definitely slanted in the direction of business. Under these circumstances, we decided to roll with the punches, so to speak. Possibly, we could have done a more thorough job under hypnoanalysis using the technique of Jung, but the man had to earn his living immediately on graduation, and he chose the field of business with an open mind. In this case, neither the man in question nor the business organization is aware of the somewhat unusual methods employed to solve his problem. Shortly after the war, a very considerable number of veterans returned to the college for the purpose of finishing work for the bachelor's degree, which had been interrupted by hostilities. These men, because of their added maturity and experience, were very much sought after by business organizations. One such organization, we will call it Company X, announced that it would send in a scout from one of the nearby cities to look over possibilities in the graduating class. The men to be interviewed were veterans graduating that June. The scout in question would then advise the personnel department of this firm in New York City as to his findings and regular personnel men would visit the campus two weeks later to close the deal. The scout in question, Mr. Jones, arrived on the campus and interviewed 10 graduating veterans whom we considered qualified for his organization. We then reviewed his impressions of the men in question. <clears throat> he expressed himself as being very well satisfied with the sample he had seen, stating that his company would probably acquire half a dozen of them, and he listed the 10 men in order of preference. Down at the bottom of his list, the man least desirable, according to his impressions, was our graduating veteran Smith. Jones admitted that Smith might be a pretty good man for some other concern, but at the present moment, he did not know what he wanted. Moreover, he was lacking in confidence, also in aggressiveness, two qualities very much required in American industry. His superiors from New York City would visit us in two weeks and probably confirm his impressions on all 10 men. We pointed out to him that while he was probably correct in his judgment of the men, we would ask the men from New York City to interview Smith along with the others as a courtesy gesture on their part. If he were not interviewed, it might further undermine his confidence in his own abilities and have a bad effect upon his entire vocational outlook. Jones admitted that this request on our part seemed reasonable, and we let the matter rest there when we left the campus. What Mr. Jones did not know and still does not know was that the Smith in question was an excellent hypnotic subject. We had been using him continuously for over a year in certain research work, and were naturally quite familiar with his background and behavior in hypnotism and with his character structure. We decided that research could mark time for the next two weeks, while we tried a very interesting little project involving the personality of Smith. His personality showed no evidence of neurosis or of anything remotely approaching a major maladjustment. It simply lacked force and confidence in its own ability. For the next two weeks, we held daily seances with Smith. Seances, but with one objective in mind, to convert him into a man who would be acceptable to Company X. The use of direct suggestion involves all the basic laws of teaching, and the presence of the trance in no way invalidates those laws, at least when one is dealing with a normal personality. It was a, it was a question of convincing him of the necessity for developing certain dynamic aspects in his personality, enlisting his cooperation in the project, and of then using direct suggestion. These suggestions, in general, were to the effect that he would develop complete confidence in his own ability, and he would not hesitate to exercise 
his initiative, and finally, would work hard and ignore time clocks. The New York representatives of Company X came on the campus in due time and interviewed all the 10 applicants. They agreed that the men in question represented good potential for their company, and they would probably hire half a dozen of them. It is the habit of these large companies to leave things more or less up in the air until they have had an opportunity of checking applicants from other colleges. However, there was one man in the 10 who rated top priority and to whom they made a job offer before they left the campus. His name was Smith. He was simply too good a bet for them to take any chances, since undoubtedly he would receive many offers in the course of the season. Mr. Jones of the same company called a week later and said he was puzzled over the whole thing. He still is. He asked for another interview with Smith, which was, of course, granted. He finally summed it up with a conclusion that either Smith or he himself had an off day three weeks back. He was deeply chagrined and considerably disturbed that he should have passed by a candidate who was so obviously qualified for the job in question. We will conclude by saying that Smith, acting under our advice, accepted the position and has done very well over the intervening years. This we may add, with no further reinforcement of the suggestions, since he is so located that our contacts since his graduation have been solely by mail. Here again, we have an area in which popular prejudice pretty much ties our hands. The writer has mentioned this case to several highly intelligent businessmen. Their reactions, very natural at this stage of the game, have been to avoid hypnotism and all that it means. It will take time. We close this chapter by quoting from the field of medicine, and we illustrate from the book by Bernheim, Suggestive Therapeutics, as translated from the second French edition by Herder. We chose a random selection to illustrate the wide use made of hypnotism by these earlier medical men, for Bernheim's work was first published about 80 years ago. The reader is asked to note that progress in this field during the past 10 years has probably been greater than in the preceding 100 years. We deal with this fascinating picture in chapter 7. For example, in chap for example, observation 10 in his book is a case of chronic lead poisoning and final complete cure with the aid of hypnotism, hardly a condition in which one would expect a mental cure. Observation 20 is headed violent hysterical paroxysms dating back one year, complete cure from time of first suggestion. This is more the type of ailment we would expect to find referred to hypnotism. Observation 30, nervous aphonia, loss of speech of one month standing, cure by simple affirmation. All these cases have the description of the treatment following the case description. Observation 40, melancholy, insomnia, anorexia, loss of appetite, rapid cure by hypnotic suggestion. Again, more or less the sort of case on which we'd expect to use hypnotism. Observation 50, trouble in writing consecutive to Korea, cure by a in a single seance of hypnotic suggestion. Inability to write was very marked and the cure clear-cut. Observation 59, nocturnal incontinence of urine since infancy, relieved by a single suggestion. Hypnotism is of definite use here. Observation 71, tubercular diathesis, restoration of sleep and disappearance of thoracic pains by suggestion. Decidedly not what we would expect Tuberculosis is not a mental condition by any stretch of the imagination. Observation 80, rheumatic paralysis of the forearm and right hand. Sensation totally restored in one seance. Total cure in four seances. It sounds impossible, but Bernheim is, was a very careful observer. 
Observation 90, lumbocurural muscular pain with obstinate sacrosciatic neuralgia dating back six months. Notable improvements after several hypnotic seances. Almost complete cure after five weeks of complete repeated suggestion. Observation 100, sciatic pain dating back three days cured by a single suggestion. The reader will note that we quote every 10th case from Bernheim, departing from this order only when the cases are very technical. This gives us a good idea of the diversity of the diseases, organic and non-organic, which Bernheim treated. We would point out that Bernheim held an important position as professor in the Faculty of Medicine at Nancy France. Should the reader care to check, you will find that Mole, Bramwell, Tucky, and others report essentially the same type of result as does Bernheim. These are also respected names in the history of medicine. So that was the intro. I'm going to do just a little bit on the induction of hypnotism, and then we can talk about the crimes and uh, the examples of crimes in political environments. Pretty interesting. Chapter two, the induction of hypnotism. Perhaps the best approach to an understanding of hypnotism is through the popular but somewhat unscientific idea of the unconscious mind. For example, we have all heard of persons who walk in their sleep, in some cases performing feats, like balancing on narrow balconies, which would be impossible in the waking state. When they awaken, they have no knowledge of what has happened, yet their bodies were certainly under control of some directing force. Better as an illustration is the man who talks in his sleep. At times we can enter into conversation with him. If we are careful and know how to proceed, he will talk just as sanely and often far more frankly than when awake. Yet when we do awaken him, his mind is blank as to what has occurred. Again, it would appear that something must be guiding his thoughts during this period of conversation. We will call this something the unconscious mind, a very convenient name for our own ignorance and a concept we will have to examine in later pages. This last example provides us with an excellent introduction into our subject, for the individual who talks in his sleep and answers question is really hypnotized. In fact, this is one recognized method of producing the trance, namely by changing normal sleep into hypnotic sleep. The skilled hypnotist can generally take the sleepwalker or sleep talker and shift him directly over into deep hypnotism without either the knowledge or the consent of his subject. Let us see what appears to happen in such a case. When we are in the normal waking condition, the conscious mind is running the body. We act, talk, think as we please, although such a statement implies free will, a very controversial point which we will avoid in this book as of only theoretical interest. But in deep hypnotism, this conscious mind has been dethroned. Actions are now directly are now under the will of the operator who controls the activities and deals directly with the so-called unconscious mind. If he tells us there is a black dog standing by our chair, we will see the animal clearly and pet it. We will hear a symphony orchestra at his suggestion and describe the pieces being rendered. He may suggest we are Abraham Lincoln, and we will give his Gettysburg address, or he may tell us that we have absolutely no feeling in our jaws, that the dentist is about, a about to pull a tooth and we will feel no pain. He may even throw the whole thing into the future, saying that tomorrow at 4 p.m., no matter where we are, we will suddenly see a black dog at our side. We'll pet him and lead him home. Pet him and lead him home. So the first concept we get of hypnotism is that curious picture of an unconscious, unconscious mind controlled by the conscious mind of the operator. The subject will accept any suggestion the operator gives 
within certain limits, which we will consider in later pages. In fact, the suggestion appears to be the key of hypnotism. It is the method by which the hypnotist first gains his control and unseats the normal conscious mind. After this, he finds that his only way of controlling the subject is again through suggestion, for the subject left to himself will generally do nothing at all. He acts and behaves, behaves as if in normal sleep. This unconscious mind is much nearer the surface in some people than others. While the average reader will think of hypnotism only in terms of the deepest stage or somnambulism, there are actually many degrees of the trance. Only about one person in every five has the unconscious so accessible that the conscious can be completely unseated and the operator can deal directly with the unconscious. Yet we find evidences of true hypnotic phenomena in almost everybody. How to hypnotize. Let us follow the procedure of the operator as he induces hypnosis. This will serve to show all these various states and at the same time illustrate one method of inducing hypnosis the method most in favor with the psychologist who prefers the quiet of his laboratory to the stage of the, quote, professional, unquote. Suggestion is his key, and relaxation makes the subject more open to suggestion. So first of all, he has his subject seated comfortably in a chair or reclining on a couch. Then he talks sleep. The subject is asked to close his eyes, and the operator begins somewhat as follows, quote, you're falling sound asleep. Relax all your muscles and imagine that you are going into a deep sleep, deeper and deeper. You will not wake up until I tell you. Then you will wake up quietly and you will always feel fine as a result of these suggestions. You're falling sound, sound asleep, deeper and deeper, deeper and deeper. The hypnotist continues this formula for about five minutes and then tries the first and simplest test. Listen to me. Your eyelids are locked tightly together. Tight, tight, tight. Your eyelids are locked tightly together and you cannot open your eyes no matter how hard you may try. Your eyelids are locked tightly together and you cannot open them. You may try, I dare you. Then something very curious may happen. The subject is still wide, quote, awake, unquote, in the sense that his conscious mind hears everything and remembers everything afterward. Yet for some reason or other, he cannot get those eyes open, struggle as he will. He seems to forget which muscles to use and raises his eyebrows in hopeless efforts to succeed. The operator is getting his first control over the unconscious, and this control we can see progressing in definite steps. It is much easier, for example, to influence certain small muscle groups, say the eyes or the throat, than the larger muscles, such as those in the arms or legs, while any attempt to get hallucinations or visions at this stage would almost certainly fail. We will find that on a first trial, roughly one half of the subjects cannot open the eyes, while this percentage improves as we repeat attempts at hypnosis. In the long run, after, say, a dozen trials, about 90% will reach the stage where they cannot open their eyes. The remaining 10% will generally, generally report that they feel rested, relaxed, or sleepy, but will deny any real effects. Probably this feeling of relaxation and general sleepiness should be considered as one of the hypnotic phenomena at this very early stage, but it is hard to demonstrate, whereas eye closure is quite definite. However, we must note that whereas the hypnotist can get this closing of the eyes in 90% of his cases, this does not necessarily mean that he can go any further with his suggestions. He may, and again, he may not. That seems to depend on almost entirely on the subject. There are many in whom it is easy to induce eye closure, but with whom it is quite impossible to get any tests 
which indicate a deeper stage of hypnotism. No matter how hard the hypnotist may try, he can make no progress beyond this very elementary stage, and psychology is quite at a loss to explain why. Susceptibility or lack of it to hypnosis seems to depend on certain personality traits still unknown to us, which we cannot influence. Should the hypnotist succeed in this first test with the eyes, he may proceed at once to another, which indicates a somewhat deeper state, such as stiffening of the arm. He will end eye closure and continue somewhat as follows. Quote, now relax everything. Relax your eye muscles. They are returning to normal. You are sound, sound asleep. It will not awaken until I tell you. Then you will awaken quietly and easily. Relax everything. I'm now about to make an, another test. Your right arm is becoming stiff and rigid at your side. Stiff and rigid. The muscles are tightening up. It is stiff and rigid as an iron bar. Stiff and rigid. You cannot bend your right arm. It is impossible to bend your right arm. You may try, I dare you, unquote. Once again, we may see that weird condition in which the patient is quite helpless to meet the challenge. He jerks the arm around with a curious sort of tremor and does his best, but his best produces no results. The arm remains stiff and rigid. Or he may meet the challenge quite successfully, relax his arm and open his eyes. In this, the case has been... In this case, he has broken any influence the hypnotist might have had. But even if he cannot bend his arm, this fact guarantees nothing as to his going deeper. As in the case of eye closure, he may be wide awake and remember everything perfectly at the seance. The suggestions of the hypnotist have been successful up to this point. Beyond it, he may be quite unable to make further progress. If successful, another test is in order. Various operators will use different tests in different sequences, but the idea is the same at this early stage, namely to involve larger and larger groups of muscles in these induced paralyses. The next move might easily be something like this. First of all, we must remove the effects of the previous test. So we say, quote, relax, relax your right arm. It is returning to normal. Your right arm is resting quietly at your side and there's no strain whatsoever. You are sound, sound asleep, deeper and deeper, deeper and deeper. You are losing all control over your body. Your body is floating away and you can no longer control your muscles. For example, it is quite impossible for you to stand up. You are stuck in your chair and you are impossible to stand erect. You may try, but you cannot, I dare you, unquote. And the subject either does or he does not. He may pull himself together, even if other tests have succeeded, open his eyes and stagger to his feet. On the other hand, he may make ineffective efforts to arise then decided it's useless and relax in his chair. In all these early stages of hypnotism, we notice a curious lethargy and unwillingness on the subject part to exert himself. Very frequently, when we dare the subject to open his eyes, bend his arm, or stand up, he makes no effort whatsoever. If we question him afterward, we find that he heard the challenge, was certain that he can move the muscles in question if he wished to, but he just couldn't be bothered to try. He was feeling quite comfortable and wished to remain so. This must be listed as one of the earliest and best signs of success in inducing a hypnotic trance. It is a very significant cue which the experienced operator never overlooks, for it is not what one would expect if there were no influence. For example, suppose a hypnotist goes up to a gentleman sitting quietly in a hotel lobby and suddenly says, quote, Mr. Smith, you cannot stand up. Your legs are paralyzed. No matter how hard you try, you cannot leave the chair, unquote. Mr. Smith, once he had recovered from his astonishment, would probably stand up immediately and call the hotel management for protection against this madman. But the hypnotic subject adopts an entirely different attitude. Not only does he think of the operator's actions quite reasonable, but he makes no effort to assert his own independence. 
This curious lethargy found in many people generally indicates that the individual will become a good subject. Should the operator be successful up to this point, he will proceed with the next step. He has demonstrated to his satisfaction that he can control the voluntary muscles, large and small, but this does not necessarily mean that he is dealing with a good subject, a somnambulist. He still has several steps to make. Next, he will try automatic movements, talk, taking the subject somewhat deeper as follows. So he kind of goes through, I'm not going to read through all this from uh, uh, Esther Brooks, but it just shows that it's a pattern. There's a technique. They go over and over. They keep testing. They keep going You know, for a deeper uh, hypnotism. But it's also interesting to note that some people cannot be hypnotized and some people are on a different uh, susceptibility spectrum. So that's really it. So it really is something else. But he goes kind of in, you know, can you be, uh, he asked the question, can be hypnotized against your will? Um, the lazy man's way. There's all kinds of interesting things about this. But some of his case studies in this book are remarkable. And I think I'll go to the kind of quotes about Hitler and it takes kind of one to know one. I think it's pretty remarkable. This is from a section hypnotism and human fear. So this is chapter 10. Chapter 10, hypnotism and human affairs. In this chapter, we will direct your attention to some fields of everyday experience wherein hypnotism may have considerable significance. We choose a limited number of these fields for purposes of illustration. <clears throat> the reader is asked to note that very little indeed has been written on the subject of the possible application of hypnotism to human affairs. Much excellent work has been done with hypnotism in medicine. A number of persons, including the writer, have devoted considerable time to the study of hypnotism in crime and hypnotism in warfare. But most of us are not sick or potential criminals or in military service. What is hypnotism to offer to the problem of ordinary people in everyday life? Politics. Let us look at the field of politics. There are times when we ordinary folk almost give up in hopeless despair. Barrages of oratory come rolling in over TV, each side accusing the other of just about every crime on the calendar to exaggerate somewhat. How can we make up our minds before we cast our ballots? So we need to seek understanding. If we could only obtain some insight as to the rules which govern the game, it might save us considerable confusion, might even avert catastrophe. For in politics, we deal with national, even world problems, and these problems can have very serious implications. Our interest here centers on the psychology of leadership, especially on that type of leadership, which somebody has called leadership to danger. We refer to the mob leader, to the dictator. The dictator. Please understand that we do not place our own political leaders in this category. Far from it. But here and there, even in America, we will have an isolated example when the, where the rabble rouser can become a dangerous figure. We shall examine this type of individual closely. Strange to say, hypnotism throws a great deal of light on his special personality makeup. And incidentally, we can learn much about the psychology of ordinary healthy leadership by examining the character of those leaders who do not fall in this category. For the purpose of clarity, we will again, for the last time in this book, remind the reader of the basic points in hypnotism. Hypnotism as we know it is an example of direct or prestige suggestion. 
This, we maintain, is based on emotion. You are much more suggestible when your emotions are aroused, when you are really angry or really afraid. It is a question of brain sensitization. The mob leader, leader, the rabble-rouser, the dictator, is essentially a top-flight hypnotist. His show may not be quite as spectacular as that of the stage hypnotist, but his actual results in terms of human problems make those of our stage friend look very childless, childish. We will take a typical dictator and compare his technique step-by-step step to that of the hypnotist. This will give us insight into how his mind works, and that insight may someday be very helpful to us in our own thinking. Let us, for the next few pages, imagine ourselves back in the days of the Second World War. Many will recall the emotional setting of that period as a direct personal experience. To others, the younger generation, it will be a matter of history, but very recent history. We can best illustrate our immediate line of thought by focusing on one individual in one historical setting familiar to all of us, either by direct experience or personal account. Let us take the case of Hitler. How did he arrive at power and how did he maintain himself in power? We're talking in terms of mob psychology, and this field has been given a great deal of thought by psychologists. There are six essential points in the psychology of the mob, and hence important to the leader of that mob. The mob leader may not have analyzed the situation as would a psychologist, but he will instinctively use this pattern for the simple reason that it works, and his evil genius tells him that it will work. He will strive for a restriction in the field of consciousness among the members of his mob. He will try to establish a mono-motivational field, as we say in psychology. In plain English, he will strive to develop in that mob a single-track mind. His ideas, and his ideals only, are to be considered by the mob. This he does by means of a controlled press, a controlled radio, and a controlled television. His followers hear only one line of thought, his line of thought. He is interested, as we say, in the ideas that stay put, and he takes care that those ideas are few, simple, and that no one is allowed to question them. In Germany, during the Second World War, it was a brave man indeed who dared to express ideas contrary to Hitler's theme song. It takes just a brave just as brave a man to dare go against the party line in communist countries at the present day. If you are caught listening to radio broadcasts other than those approved by the central authority, you have bought yourself a one-way ticket to a concentration camp. At least this has been true until very recently, and at the time of writing, we cannot yet foretell what the mass resistance to the fall and winter of 1956 will achieve. Note also that this restriction in the field of consciousness is the first concern of the hypnotist. In fact, one theory of hypnotism explains it entirely in terms of this restriction. The operator strives for a condition wherein the subject hears just one voice, can listen to just one voice. We term it rapport. Other people present, present at the seance may make all sorts of suggestions, give all sorts of orders. The subject ignores them, but immediately responds to the slightest suggestion given by the hypnotist. Then the dictator will appeal to the emotions. Reason is his worst enemy and he takes great care that the enemy in question is eliminated. Moreover, he will appeal to the baser, baser emotions, fear, anger, hatred. In the case of Hitler, it was hatred of the Jews, the French, the Russians, hatred of all democracies. The sheer power of fear can be very great. Before the last war, one of the best-known German psychologists published a work showing that Nordic hens were superior to Mediterranean hens. This work was the purest trash so far as science is concerned but it was terribly potent when fed to an inflamed people. It gives us a startling example of what the power of fear can do even to the scientific mind. Psychologist in question 
had no delusions as to the weakness of his case, and no delusions as to his own fate should he refuse to obey orders. It was simply a case of play ball or else. While we may have condemned this attitude from a safe seat in a democratic country, it is well to remember that we could take an academic view of things while he was faced with a grim reality. Now, hypnotism also has this emotional basis, although the appeal is not to the baser emotions. Furthermore, we can arouse emotion very easily in a hypnotic subject. The writer doubts that even Hitler could produce the savage anger he obtained in some of his hypnotic subjects purely as a result of direct suggestion. But it can be done very convincingly with the post-hypnotic suggestion. We once took a subject, a violent anti-Nazi, and suggested to him that Jones of the group belonged to the Bund. However, we also pointed out that Jones was having tea with us and that the subject must behave like a gentleman. This he did within very broad limits. He was coldly discourteous, taking every possible opportunity to cast slurs at the Nazis. He was obviously spoiling for a fight, but he kept himself within bounds until the party broke up. Then he was quite determined that he was going Jones's way, whichever that might be. At this point, we removed the delusion and had Jones leave. For all that, the subject still had a hangover and left the house breathing fury against everything that was not 100% American. The mob leader will count on emotional contagion, an extremely important factor in all mob situations. Emotion, emotions are far more contagious than the measles. We humans tend to fit into the emotional pattern of a group. If we hear roars of laughter coming from a room, we enter that room prepared to laugh. If from the sounds we hear, there's obviously a hot argument going on and people are angry, our blood pressure goes up as we open the door and we are ready to take part in the quarrel. But if there should be a religious service going on in that room, our emotions behave themselves accordingly. This fact of emotional contagion is, was very important to Hitler. He could set the stage with his controlled radio, his controlled press, whip up the emotions of his people in a few inflammatory speeches and newspaper articles, and could then depend upon nature's taking its course, so to speak. The effectiveness with which nature did take its course is all too evident as we look back at those days of the Second World War. With hypnotism, we can whip up emotional contagion just as effectively as any dictator. In laboratory hypnotism, it may involve only one or two individuals, but it serves to illustrate a point. The writer once saw, in, saw one instance where this had sad results for one of the spectators. A hypnotist in the army was giving a very good demonstration before a group of officers. His hypnotic subject, a sergeant, was a powerfully built chap with a perpetual grouch. This sergeant was allergic to a certain major X, so the hypnotist, to add a touch of comedy, selected one of the group, a lowly second lieutenant, and whispered in the subject's ear that he was this major X, and he, the hypnotist, was definitely, very definitely did not like him. The result was a dramatic, if not comic. The sergeant stepped up to the lieutenant and let loose a barrage of profanity, which caused even the hard-boiled Canadian officers to gasp. Moreover, the grieved sergeant showed every intention of following the verbal attack with assault and battery before the hypnotist again had the situation under control. Then we have the matter of social sanction. The individual feels justified in any action approved by the mob and its leaders. It seems difficult for the normal individual to understand how any person could approve of and even take part in the atrocities of a Hitler. But when we are familiar with the psychology of the mob, we know that the abnormal can become normal, so to speak. Let us illustrate. The writer was visiting a small American town in the north one New Year's Eve. Everything seems quite normal. Then at the head of Main Street, the crowd became rough. 
Perhaps the police were not as tactful as they might have been, but the causes are all very obscure. The crowd started breaking windows. The police interfered, and the fat was in the fire. The mob thoroughly beat up two policemen and raged through half a mile of that town, smashing and looting according to the very best mob traditions. It took a detachment of troops to get the situation in hand. The next morning, the town, the authorities, and the mob members were completely puzzled as to what had really occurred. This is an excellent example of social sanction. You were in the mob. The mob was breaking windows and looting. Therefore, you were quite justified in doing the same. In another city, the writer was present when a lynching occurred. It was the usual story of a white woman insulted by a Negro. The crowd went wild, wrecked the Negro quarter, and finally hanged the culprit to a lamp post. Unfortunately, the victim was not the real culprit, as later investigations showed, but a man who could not possibly have been associated with the crime in question. But the mob had its way. The man was dead, as might have been anyone, white or black, who interfered with that group at the height of its fury. It is a little difficult to illustrate social sanction, social sanction from the practice of hypnotism because there is no society present. The society in question consists of the hypnotist. He sanctions or he disapproves. However, within these limits, social sanction is very obvious. Whatever the hypnotist says goes. It is the voice of society, and the subject will carry out the suggestions within those limits which we have already outlined. Again, in the mob or under the dictator, we get that curious feeling of omnipotence, the I'm right, you're wrong reaction, which we see in the fanatic. It never occurred to the Nazi. It does not occur to the communist. There, there are two sides to an argument. Or rather, there are indeed two sides to any argument, his side and the one that's wrong. If you are living under a dictator, you are perfectly free to do as you're told. If this type of freedom does not appeal to you, then you are perfectly free to say so and take the consequences. You will be a very brave man to choose the latter alternative. We can get the exactly the same sort of thing in hypnotism. The operator, using the influence of post-hypnotic suggestion, properly worded, can produce as narrow-minded and unreasonable a fanatic as a Nazi or communist could ever hope to be. Some of these cases from hypnotism have their humorous side. The writer was illustrating this point with a subject many years back in England. He told the subject that on awakening, he would be under the delusion that he was God and would act accordingly. The subject was highly intelligent. There was present a don or professor of the college which was e who was equally intelligent. <clears throat> when the subject was awakened, the Don attacked him from an unusual angle. Listen, God, he said, I'm not questioning for one moment that you are God. I take that for granted. Would you be good enough to help me on a matter which has been giving me considerable trouble? Would you give me your reactions to the question of the Immaculate Conception? This approach puzzled God, but only for a brief, brief period. He thought for a moment, then he came back with the perfect answer. God never talks shop. Finally, we come to the mob actions of this picture. We refer to this as the removal of inhibitions. Anything goes if the party sanctions such activity. The stories of torture, organized sadism, of gas chambers that we received from Nazi concentration camps were simply impossible, but they happen to be true. As one writer put it, we humans can become angry apes committing before high heaven such sins as to make the angels weep. The ape is always there. Remove the inhibitions, give him the green light so to speak, and you may stand aghast at what happens. Hypnotism also illustrates this removal of inhibitions. Our examples may not, not be as ghastly as the type we have mentioned, but the potential is there. The writer once hypnotized a soldier and had a fine example of this removal 
of inhibition. The chap was a steady, reliable man who did his duty and gave no excuse for complaint. He was in deep trance, and the writer said, Now, Mac, you're in good hands, and no one cares what happens. Is there anything you would like to do? There certainly is, said Mac, and he started swearing. He damned everything in the army from the general to the lowest private. Then he started on the Germans and gave them his undivided, profane attention for 15 minutes. Next, he devoted his attention to the slackers at home, inventing several names for them, which were new even to an army man. Suddenly, he stopped. Thanks, I feel, feel better. How about waking up? Good idea. Snap me out of it. Once awake, he was obviously relieved by this terrific outburst. You know, he said, I never felt so well since this war started. Let's try it again sometime. The reader will see the close resemblance between the technique of the hypnotist and the devices used by the dictator, the mob leader. Some authorities would object to our saying that the dictator is a really a hypnotist. They would prefer to reserve the word hypnotism for a specialized technique. They would admit, however, that the secret of success in both hypnotism and in mob leadership is the use of, use of direct or prestige suggestion acting on a brain sensitized through emotion. They would protest against our using the word hypnotism to cover the phenomena of mob psychology, yet they would admit that a knowledge of hypnotism tells us just about all there is to know concerning mob psychology. This being so, the implications are pretty obvious. In a democracy, we elect by the popular vote. As somebody said, the first problem of a politician is like that of a jockey, to stay in the saddle. You and the other voters of this country make the choice of our political leaders. If you make the wrong choice at some future date, it may be your last choice. From then on, you will be perfectly free to vote the party line. How can we guarantee that our choice at the polls will be a wise one? Our previous discussion of hypnotism and mob psychology should help. If this man you listened to on TV last night, is this man a genuine leader or is he a rabble rouser? Is he heading a battle of democratic principles or a batty battle of the gravy bowl? We may safely say that in America, we have the world's most intelligent electorate that on the whole, our politicians are a superior group, so we are not crying panic. On the other hand, as we have said, when you stop being better, you stop being good. And on this matter of electing a political dictator, potential dictator, you'll make that mistake once only. From then on, he will take care that your mistakes are always in his favor. So play a little game with yourself. Sit down and think over that last spellbinder you heard on the platform, over the radio or on television. Behind every argument is someone's ignorance. You probably are either for him or against him. Why? Was he appealing largely to your reason or was his appeal largely to your emotion, especially on such matters as class privilege, the race issue, religious issues? These matters can be handled along the lines of reason, but the temptation to go over to highly emotional appeal is very marked. In other words, were you listening to a man of reason or to a hypnotist who aimed to limit your field of consciousness? You say you cannot be hypnotized against your will. Perhaps you were hypnotized last night as you listened to that political address over your TV. It might be well to give a little thought to this matter. Don't worry about the hypnotist in his laboratory. You will probably never meet him. The most dangerous hypnotist may be the man you listened to last week over the radio. You were his subject. His appeal was emotional, inflammatory, an excellent example of prestige suggestion. You came away determined that something drastic should be done on, shall we say, the racial racial issue. As a matter of fact, you are a very excellent subject. Think it over. And think about the nature of that type of hypnotist. 
He may be, he often is, a man of great intelligence. You may have your own opinions about Hitler, Mussolini, or Napoleon, but no one ever accused them of being morons. They could and did use the brains they had with great effect. Their outlook was purely selfish. They used their intelligence to further their own ends, but Hitler was excellent within these narrow limits. Such men possess an uncanny drive, a restless energy, as they push forward toward their own self-centered ideal, and they will be utterly ruthless in attaining their ends. The rights of others and the lives of others are simply of no consequence if they stand between the dictator and his determined goal. Then note another very important point. The dictator may be generally as a man of great personal courage. He plays along grimly until the last throw of the dice and meets his fate with his chin up. This may be because he is perfectly sincere. This sounds like a strange contradiction, but we must accept it. The dictator really believes that he is God's chosen instrument or society's chosen instrument. And if he does not believe in God to lead his group or possibly the entire world into the promised land, the resulting picture is not pleasant. And the individual who creates that picture is easily the most dangerous of all the mentally maladjusted. He has intelligence, conviction, drive, courage, and will be utterly unscrupulous, a combination which calls for serious concern. For the rest of this chapter, we'll discuss hypnotism and straight hypnotism. So that's basically it. I think that uh, I'm done for the night. But yeah, so that was George Esther Brooks. And I think a lot of this stuff, like what did you watch on TV? Like that one uh, paragraph he had was pretty remarkable. I'll repeat it. You say you cannot be hypnotized against your will. Perhaps you were hypnotized last night as you listened to that little political address over your TV. It might be well to give a little thought to this matter. Don't worry about the hypnotist in his laboratory. You will probably never meet him. The most dangerous hypnotist may be the man you listened to last week over the radio. You were his subject. His appeal was emotional, inflammatory, an excellent example of prestige suggestion. You came away determined that something drastic should be done on shall we say, the racial issue. As a matter of fact, you were a very excellent subject. Think it over. Thank you for listening.